0: This show is just lazy. All this and more coming up on This Week in Retro.
1: High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those
2: kids are not afraid of computers.
0: Shim Shimini. Dos gets unreal. Um, blue LED on a die. All this and more coming up on this week's show. (laughs) Up to date news for up to date tech. Hi everyone! We've got a very special guest with us today. It's Clint from LGR. He was last with us on show 112, and guess what we talked about on that show? We talked about Doom. Well, what else do we talk about on this show? It's either Ultima or Doom. Yeah,
2: for How people who go? don't people who don't know, uh, Clint is uh, a YouTube um, creator who makes videos about mice.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, and SimCity. Yeah, that's it.
1: Sims and mice. That's all I do anymore. How are you, Clint? How's your week been? I'm doing just fine. I'm I'm actually uh, purposely recovering from the SimCity thing, because that was a two or three week straight endeavor of just diving into all kinds of archives and honestly just playing the game for like a week straight. So, uh, yeah, it was was great, but I I needed a bit of a, a breather, so doing uh,
0: this before i start recording anything else <laughs> fantastic um yeah. do you find that when you're covering something like sim city it was 3000 in this case that if you've played the game a lot which you have in that series you feel like you have to play it even more before you cover it because you're worried about missing out on you know the basics getting something wrong um whereas if you're coming in with fresh eyes it's do you find it a bit easier to cover something newer Something that you haven't played as much?
1: It's easier and more difficult at the same time, as you can imagine, because you know what you need or want to say and cover and make sure that you get all that stuff in there. And then because you are, or at least I feel so uh, close to it. It's like, oh, I know this game inside and out. But then naturally I'll go into the manual, or the strategy guide, and there's like 10 things I forgot about. So I need to sort of double check. So I kind of get the first draft out of the way really easily because I can just basically do it from memory. And then I'll go back and fill in all those gaps. And you know, the rest of it is just like that first like third of the video, which is the development of the game. And that is a whole... That's a whole different part of it that I wrote separately, like last year.
2: <laughs> Quite interested to hear you defending EA. it.
1: It's a weird thing, but yeah, I've always been defensive of EA taking over Maxis because they really did save their skin at that particular point in time. Hmm. I mean, if it weren't for them, they would have killed themselves off. Like it was just a bad place for that uh, company to be back then due to bad management. So sometimes you need a corporate overlord to. You know, mm. put some boots on some necks. But then after that, mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. we know what happened to Maxis since then. So
0: <laughs> I'm when some loss at origin up. and yeah. There
1: and there are everybody many
0: EAs. else. Yeah. You can't just say, Oh, I hate EA because well, what era are you talking about? Which EA are you talking about? There are some wonderful eras of EA and some awful ones. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Um Dave, how's your week been? I, I I last week after we recorded
2: something snapped and I ordered forty Euro crates, which are these great big plastic containers, I'm having a thorough tidy out. Um, it's taken ages, but I'm, near, I'm I'm getting to the point where I can see what it's going to look like at the end. It'll be finely organised. I say I've been drilling holes in my desk. Look at this. This is a a Forstner bit, which is like a hole saw except it's better. It's not better. It takes longer. Makes more mess. But it, it cuts this, this, this hole and spray stuff everywhere. I've been, I've been doing all sorts. I've been I uh, uh, finally doing stuff that I needn't done. Um, and I wish I hadn't started in some ways. But I can see the end is coming. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing.
0: Yeah, the end is coming. We collect and we organise. That's what yes. we do. It's just an yes. endless cycle.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm a janitor in my own house. <laughs>
0: right, well, let's get into
2: our first story then, shall we? There's a long history of copy protection on games. Today's submission from Pajaco started me down a rabbit hole, which is basically what I do here. Someone submits the story, and I go Googling, and I explore things. Um, This time, though, my Googling took me back in a loop to a newsletter that I had read a couple of years ago uh, from TM. Links in the show notes. The newsletter talked about the various forms of copy protection in games over the years and on media in general, starting in the late 70s with Microsoft Inventure. Which was a text adventure based in Colossal Cave, which is what Zork was also based on. Uh moving on to Elite and Lens Lock, which was a lens that you had to put on the screen that that turned a kind of unscrambled an image, but only if you calibrate it right. And it was really difficult, caused problems, and eventually they dropped it after
0: complaints. There's a very good MVG video in that in the show notes. Uh, one that jumps out that sort of era is the Jet Set Willy colorblind test, you oh, know, the big yeah. grid of colors. Yeah. Even with the original, uh, it, it was all folded up inside the cassette, wasn't it? And then you'd fold it out. And even with the original, even without a photocopied one, you would get it wrong. It was so hard to read. And it. you needed brilliant eyesight as well. Wow. Yeah, I actually imported a copy of
1: that, and it was sun-faded when I got it.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this is completely useless. It was the worst... <laughs> Then on to code wheels, and some of them did it with a bit of charm. I, mean, I remember um, Pools of Radiance, nothing special about that, but Dial-A-Pirate and mixing mojo on Monkey Island and Monkey Island 2, um, and then manual checks where you to go to a page in the manual and type in a particular word. That was popular. Um, it was good for games like Go Box d and which had the great big
0: thick manuals. Another one, a bit like Jet Set Willy, was um, Operation Stealth, or in the US, the Stealth Affair. I don't know if you—you've you, probably got a copy of that, Clint. And it's like a foiled test, color test, and um, it's a picture that's broken into chunks, um, and then it, it gives you a, a location, and you've got to say what color it is. Dave's reaching for something oh. on the shelf. You've got it there. Yeah. yeah, it's like a little work of art. There it is. Oh my! A real sort of foily, shiny. Mine's
1: on it and everything doesn't have that. At least oh. it's not in the box. I'm, I'm curious now if it was supposed to or if they just changed it to like manual copy protection for the US localization. Maybe, they, yeah. It changed so much about that game from the title to the theme and all that. So I was
0: going to say it wasn't even called
2: Operation Stealth. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So presumably that was so you couldn't just photocopy that because it was all shiny and nice. The article doesn't
2: mention my favorite, though, which is Dungeon Master on the Atari ST. So in this, there were several checks, and if it failed, then weird stuff would happen. So thrown objects would start floating. When you clicked and save, it would just close the inventory as if you clicked the wrong button. Um, everybody would then die, or resurrect altars wouldn't wouldn't work, and then weird stuff—just not telling you you'd failed the copy protection, just things to 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 mess with you. Link in the show notes. It really is fascinating. I'm not entirely sure how successful that would be though because you would think you wouldn't think I need to go and buy this game because it keeps crashing on me. You would think this game's rotten.
0: Yeah, if you're not careful you're just putting your potential yeah. customers off, yeah. I,
2: I, ideally in my head the ideal way would be for it to say okay, we know this is a pirate copy. You can play the first couple of levels but you need to buy it afterwards. Um, Turn it
0: into a demo. Yeah.
2: yeah, that's right. Sega and Nintendo, both using, used to having really low levels of piracy, thanks to cartridges, which were pretty much um, never pirated, um, had some interesting copy protection when they moved to CDs and DVDs, mostly around having non-standard formats to make it more difficult. But each time it was defeated, although often needing mod chips, and I'm sure we've all heard about mod chips for PlayStations and so on,
0: i would interject just to say there was plenty of piracy with those floppy disk devices for things like the uh famicom and the you know super famicom but but not not to anything like what it was on no the it ST wasn't super common no because amiga, you had yeah. to go that extra mile to get yeah. that hardware you didn't by default just have what you need yeah. yeah
2: the mod chip was a bit closer to ST and amiga piracy in that you you took it somewhere they modded it and that was it done um but nothing quite as bad as that um we're now finished with the TDM article. We're on to today's article from OC Thirty Two about SafeDisc. Now it's a tool that allows modern PCs to run games using SafeDisc. The SafeDisc ran for about ten years, starting in nineteen ninety eight, and it was made by Macrovision, who made lots of the various types of copy protection, including stuff in VHS cassettes. And in Windows ten. In 2015, Microsoft announced they would drop support for SECDRV.SYS. That's the driver that SafeTest needed in order to work. And Microsoft said it had a security vulnerability that allowed it escalated privileges where there shouldn't be. So they dropped support for it, meaning you just couldn't run these old games in Windows 10. Uh, the protection ran, I'm not entirely sure how it works, a bit too complicated for me, but it ran delicate checks on the copy protection on the CD so that it could identify an original compared to a copy disk somehow. And it has be, it was heavily criticized at the time for going too far, taking too much control over your computer, being unwelcome on it. And Microsoft eventually agreed and killed it off. So a safe disk shim is a compatibility tool that allows these older games to work in modern Windows. And although I'm going to suggest that it might not only be the only compatibility issue, I don't think this is going to suddenly allow a 1998 game to run in Windows 11, but uh, it will allow you to get part of the way. Um, I had a look at a list of games, and so ones that stood out, Age of Empires 2, Age of Mythology, Anno 1503, various Call of Duty Black and White 1 and 2, Some of the Command and Conquers, Freelancer, Doom 3, The Sims 2, loads of games used it. Um, But on the other hand, those of you who pirated your games, obviously i never pirated a game in my life, uh, who pirated the games or used Steam would have seen none of that. And I reckon a lot of these games will now be on Steam, so it's not maybe helping those in, in that way. Neil, what do you think?
0: um well uh, i did skim through the list of games uh, affected and i've got to say i saw a lot of them where i thought i played that but i didn't buy that so i don't think this was a particularly good <laughs> copy protection <laughs> method i remember it being an annoyance at times and of course we had the, the sites we would go to to find the uh, the patches um in terms of microsoft pulling support for safe disk i actually applaud that because closing security holes is what microsoft should be doing with their os's for too long we had elevated privileges just in as standard in os's everyone was a super user every process was running with unfettered access so for pulling it i don't think ms uh, are the bad guys in that situation um it's another story we have so many of these where piracy comes to the rescue in terms of video game preservation thank goodness for piracy uh, thank goodness it happened at the time because I don't think many people would be looking back and going, hmm, I really should make an OCD patch for Anno 1503 in 2024. But thank goodness they did at the time. Um, so we've got that there. Uh, piracy of a different kind. Have you guys been watching Our Flag Means Death on Netflix series? Is it, no? good? Is oh, it It's brilliant. Good? It's brilliant. Yes. Yeah seen just a
1: little bit i think i saw like the first episode because a friend had it on but i haven't haven't dove into it yet i've heard it's great though
0: it's great it's great there's a character called izzy and he concludes towards the end that we the this isn't a spoiler don't worry we the pirates are the good guys we're the ones who'll be remembered not the empire (laughs) who have been fighting against us and it's kind of turning that way in software preservation the pirates are the good guys they're the ones that we'll remember we should be celebrating them what we're talking about here only serves an, uh, this particular era of game protection. Um, I still don't see a clear solution to the longer-term preservation of video game history. Where games require online services that are shut down, there really needs to be um, a requirement, I think, for publishers to or development houses to release the code for the server. Give us the server. Let us run our own servers. We don't expect a quality of experience that's, you know. that that reflects on you guys in any way whatsoever just let us play the game Um, and as another aside you mentioned colossal cave i i I just wanted to ask clint have you tried the modern remake of colossal cave that came out in the last year i I, somebody was just asking me about that like two days ago and uh
1: yeah it's another one of those i I started it up i'm like heck yeah this is gonna be you know and and then i stopped uh but i know it's like in vr now and everything or it is vr in particular and it just got the meta quest 3 so i kind of want to try it in that now that i have that so i got the
0: yeah i got the feeling it was released a little bit early but they've carried on developing it an awful lot since then so it's probably worth yeah. checking again yeah
2: it's probably worth uh, glad that i waited uh, in hindsight mm. so we were talking about neil i think you and i and and noticed that the steam reviews now for there's very little at- activity but the activity is the steam reviews are positive now so people are enjoying it um and they, they've they've put what looks to be a lot of effort into a version 1.2 or whatever it was compared to the low sales they had originally so so fair play to them for for pushing on and doing something with it don't know if it's any good though i haven't played it <laughs> clint what do you think of this then safe disc
1: yeah, I've have uh, never been a fan of any kind of thing like this. Um so yeah, in that sense I'm just happy to see that there is something happening in this respect that anybody even cares about. Um you know cuz it, it almost seems like one of those forgotten bits of DRM history at this point, because so many folks are, you know, I mean, focused rightly on the uh, the online options nowadays going away and servers and stuff killing off games. But there's a lot of stuff that's been left behind. I mean, I was looking over the the game list for safe disk. And yeah, it, there's like 500 games almost. And that's one of those facts that I just, I never really thought about how many were actually affected by this, but I knew there was a lot I was affected by it because I can't tell you how many times I've been caught off guard and just sort of screwed over by this, trying to capture game footage specifically for those mid 2000s titles. But I mean, even, you know, a lot of my favorites like Need for Speed, that whole series just about had safe disc from high stakes onward. And that is something I've run into so many times where it's like I can run neither speed one, two and three in various forms pretty easily on a modern system. Uh, but yeah, once you get the high stakes or beyond, it's it's constantly that problem of running into it where uh, I mean, that's half the reason I ended up building my dream XP computer was just to run safe disc and securom kind of titles.
0: Oh, Securom,
1: yeah. Yeah, Securom yeah. it's, it's the worst. <laughs> and I'm really hoping to see this, some sort of bypass for that as well because there are so many other games that are affected by that and it's the same situation Microsoft doesn't let that run on Windows 10 or 11 either. Um so yeah, it's it's nice to have the bypass but as you're saying earlier it's also not uh, a fix for like getting uh, the no CD checks gotten rid of which I think, is the the morally right thing to do if you own the games. <laughs> like, just get rid of the checks. Like It's going to be, uh, you know, it's one of those things that only hurt the actual buyer and consumer back in the day, not the pirates. So you may as well get the better product since you bought it, get the CD crack. Um, but at the same time, those have gotten uh, really hard to get really good versions of. And I uh, have had an annoyance with that recently. I I don't remember what it was. The last one might've been black and white. And I was trying to get that uh, on a modern system so I could capture footage for it for a video. And installing that on Windows 10, I ran into the Securom thing. So I had to go and find a no CD crack, but the no CD cracks, it was like for another version, or it was like the UK one only and not the US release. And then you know the old sites that I used to go to are now filled with all these broken links and malicious files and just bad archives. So I can't even rely on the old pirate stuff, because those are out of the way. So if I would have had this shim thing, I could have used my original disk on the modern system, and that would have bypassed it uh, having to go and You know, I I got the giant XP rig out and got the capture setup going. So as a YouTuber, I'm kind of uh, happy about this just so I can have an easier way to capture uh, on modern systems. But uh, there's still a lot that to be desired in the terms of like late 90s, early 2000s copy protection getting in the way of a good
0: time, I guess. SimCity 3000 is on the list, I saw there, yep. uh, as is Erotica Island from Redfire Software. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll check that one out later. I've not heard of that one. Dave, sounds like one of your games. Um, I, I'm sure I'll be right into that, so I will. Um,
2: again, <laughs> though, it just shows that this affects the people who buy the games and no one else. Just like you said, Clint, back in the day, in 2002 whatever, you could find a no-CD crack for anything without any difficulty No problems at all. Loads of different sites. The sites that you mentioned that are are now down, there was loads of those. You go to them, no problem at all. And you would even get them for legitimate games you'd bought to stop the CD drive whirring up for no reason. Um, So yeah, if you need it, it's now there. I don't really think it's opening the door very much, Um, although Clint's told me I'm wrong because he's just said Need for Speed. The earlier ones work fine in a modern system, so I'm wrong there. But there's, yeah, um, it does feel like the right way to get around it rather than using a no CD. If you can use this and do it that way, that feels like the right way to get around it.
0: Game copy world. That was the. Light. That's the one, yeah. Game, game copy, copy World, World. Game it still Copy there? World, <laughs> it, it is
1: actually Game Burn World is still there and Mega Games is still there, but they're all it's like I said, filled with horribly broken links or just weirdly mislabeled
2: things. Game Copy World still looks. I remember the Pac Man on the game. They still the look copy. the same, <laughs> though. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: It's yep, like stepping yep.
2: back in time.
0: Yeah, I don't want it to change. I like it like that. <laughs> Time now for our sponsorship slot. And I should make clear that our guest is in no way associated with our sponsor today. But I'm sure yes. he's read it at some point, but he's not associated. And our sponsor is Pixel. Addict Magazine. I was flattered to have a visitor from Pixel Addict recently. Um, Sozzled on Discord came to see us uh, and just learned a bit more about the background of the cave and the arcade archive and everything that we do there. And there is a, I think, a four-page spread in, in the current or the next Pixel Addict Magazine. So you should buy it just for that reason.
2: It has. This is a new art. This is a new edition, which is just out. It's got Lara Croft in front. Another wonderful. The covers in this magazine are great. It's um, just the outline, the the lights behind her, Um, and there's lots of articles there. But the big one is on Tomb Raider 1996, and it's still going. They're still churning out these. So David Crooks looks at that, among other things, including Ant Stream and, of course, RMC Retro, the Cave.
0: Nice interview with Holly here at the uh, Retro Collective oh. and uh, her thoughts on repairing monitors and zapping people with x-rays from uh, dangerous monitors. There I didn't go. know she was doing that. Yeah. Hopefully not, but yeah. So there so, you go. Go to – where do we go, Dave? You say it. Shall I say it? Pixel. You say it. No, Pixel. you. You go. You go. Pixel. dot. will both do it.
2: Dot. Media. Yes. You can get a PDF. You can get it delivered to your house. Or you could, uh, it comes out every six weeks. There you go. Weekly, six weeks. Thank you very much for sponsoring us. Clint, does the magazine exist? I believe it does. There we go. What an endorsement that is. Thank you very much.
0: 640k is all the memory you'll ever need, as Bill Gates famously didn't say. For vintage DOS machine tinkerers, or for those with long memories, 640k was the front line of a very real battle that we had to fight to be able to play our games. 640 kilobytes is what's known as conventional memory. In the original IBM PC, the CPU could address up to one megabyte of RAM, apparently. 640k was assigned for the system RAM, and the rest was reserved for other things such as managing hardware peripherals. As IBM's template for the personal computer was reverse engineered, cloned, pirated if you like, uh, these clones took hold and that limitation was cloned with it. And as software became ever increasingly complex, we soon hit the limits. We hit the buffers, if you like, and they demanded more. Uh, They demanded ways to overcome that 640k and those ways had to be devised expanded memory management software appeared as too did instructions on newer cpus such as intel's 286 which supported a protected mode this was a standardized way to access a high memory area uh, and then there was the 386 cpu which came with the ability to access up to four gigabytes of ram in something called real mode four gigabytes, ge- four gigabytes yes because it was um 32-bit wasn't it so it could go up to Four gigabytes. Um, yeah, uh, this is a slightly technical story, and I have noticed. Um, I have noted the comment about me that was made. Let <laughs> it <laughs> down uh, because I forced Clint to read this very early in the morning. So I do apologise, Clint. Um, anyway, I will continue. Protected mode had a layer of protection, as the name implies, between the program and the hardware. So, for example, memory was virtually mapped and managed at the OS level but in real mode a program can operate uh, at the it, it can make calls to the bios it can operate at that low down level and directly access memory with no restrictions at least that's my understanding but regardless of these features knocking down upper memory limitations the 640k hurdle remained a challenge for us special software memory managers and dos extenders had to be loaded initially to access that additional ram you needed enough of that 640K free after loading memory managers, drivers, and whatever else in your config sys, and your autoexec bat startup files to then actually launch the game. It was still very dependent on that conventional memory. Not enough conventional memory was the message that would haunt us. And we would go back to whittling our startup routines just to try and play the game that we just bought, or in Dave's case, pirated. Until now. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> this comes from a post entitled Breaking Through the One Megabyte Barrier in DOS by LordBorak316. Thank you for submitting that to the subreddit. The Amiga's and, dead, um, Lord Borak. The Amiga's dead. <laughs> the Amiga is dead. And in this article, there's a very detailed, very deep dive, far too detailed for an early morning read, um, reported by, I think it's Julio, Julio Marino. It's not about real mode, but it's about unreal mode. So this is a mode that allowed the CPU to see the one megabyte limit and beyond using very unstandard techniques. Uh, And it's cited that it happened by accident. It's a side effect of the CPU design rather than an intended approach. But people have found a way around this. How it does this? Well, I did say it was a deep dive. It includes machine code in the explanation, which is way beyond my understanding, I'm afraid. Uh, But I also found through a bit more research that this is not the first story on it. They're not the first to tinker with it. It is another rabbit hole to go down if you want to, and if you want to learn about the history of it. Far too detailed for this podcast. But to pull this back to our own experiences, isn't the fight with conventional memory a rite of passage? Is it what puts hairs on our chest? or is applauding a technical barrier to enjoyment retrocomputer snobbery of the highest order, Dave? I think I know what you're going to say. Uh, I, I People talk about it
2: now as if it was this huge, unsurmountable problem that stopped us playing games. And in some sense, it did stop us playing games until we solved it. I got around it without without huge difficulty. Uh, and I, I wanted to, this morning, I wanted to make sure I wasn't talking nonsense. i am still be talking nonsense, but I'll be right about this one thing. <laughs> and this is the reference card from um, Ultima 7, Ultima 7 Serpent Isle, and Ultima Underworld 2, Labyrinth of World, these these wonderful Ultima games here. Hit that Ultima uh, button Duncan. Uh, people haven't noticed there's an Ultima count at the end of the show on the on the, the final titles, but on the, the reference card, it says, stop, read me first. Origin strongly recommends that you create a bootable floppy disk before playing Ultima 7. And that was the answer. You create a bootable floppy disk, you fire that in drive A, turn your computer on, bang, you boot it up, it takes you a few seconds, c
0: Colon backslash ultima seven u7, and you're in, and it works fine. Does that reference card give you any indication as to what should be in your config sys? Because even though you're booting yes. from a floppy, oh, it does, yes. it gives you an yeah. example. It then
2: it? goes on to talk about high mem and PS250 users, you must use device to high mem in the first line. So it is complicated to get it working right, and there is lots of tinkering you can do, but you can use a boot disk to get around it, and that's how I did it. Now, Ultima 7 and Ultima 7 Part 2 were weird in that they used something called Voodoo, and that was their memory manager, and it didn't like EMS. So you had to use, I think, XMS for it, and if you had EMS, it wouldn't work. That's why the boot disk was a good idea because everything else used EMS, I think, or most things did. But we also had things like MemMaker in DOS 6.2. So if you had, if you were using dos 6.2 which was fairly late in the dos life before windows 95 came up it would do a lot of this for you but yeah it wasn't too bad and i don't think it's fair to say this was restricted to pcs it also happened in other things on my st for example if you booted up the st put the disc in the drive and then ran the game from the desktop it often wouldn't run because it didn't have enough memory that's why for a lot of ST games and Amiga, I think, worked the same way. You stuck the distance drive and turned it on, and it didn't load the operating system. It
0: wasn't a, huh. yeah, it wasn't a huge barrier to entry, though, was it? you just boot with no. the disc in, no. <laughs> and, and away you go. <laughs> Perhaps it got a bit more complex if you were using, say, an ST or an Amiga with a hard disc, and you wanted yeah. to do all these things at once. Um, it was the same basic idea. Yeah, and like you say, the... when you got a game nothing was going to come between you and that no. game. You were going to find a way, even if it involved some technical challenges along the way.
2: So I don't think it wasn't too bad, but you've now got things like Phil, Phil's computer lab boot menu, which is this wonderful thing you can put on a DOS computer that will give you a list of options, whether you want EMS or XMS, whether you want mouse or mouse and CD-ROM or cd rom and no mouse and it it'll, it'll make it easier for you to get the the right amount of memory to run these games and the smaller drivers as well the drivers that came with the peripherals we bought might have been inefficient and bloated whereas now you've got cute mouse driver which is smaller so things are things are better now
0: um clint i'm sure this is something that you you struggle with on a daily basis (laughs) (laughs) uh
1: yeah i mean yeah thankfully not not uh as much anymore due to the things mentioned there the the, phil's menus are great and smaller drivers and whatnot but uh yeah you know it's it definitely looking over this article made me respect the people that had to come around or you know work around these solutions way more (laughs) um it was a heck of a lot to take in early in the morning i i do like an aneurysm with my coffee so thank you for that um (laughs) But yeah, like it was, it was clearly a big problem, especially in the late '80s, early '90s. There's this interesting period of time, and that's, I think, from what I was looking at, really briefly, when people started to discover this Unreal Mode thing, um, which I, I guess is also known as Voodoo Mode. I didn't even know any of this until like 30 minutes ago. But like, yeah, Ultima 7's Voodoo Mode is it, really just this Unreal Mode trick that they were using. Um, same thing. It was like the only commercial title apparently to use this, uh, and everybody else just kind of moved on to using DOS extenders after that, which I don't know why Ultima wasn't using that because DOS extenders would have been around since the late eighties as well. So uh, maybe they just had their own specific type of voodoo that, you know, they're wizards over there, origin guys, programmers or legends. So whatever, they had a good reason for doing it. I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, in terms of my own personal experience with this, I mean, holy crap, the, uh, shareware games in particular or what really introduced me to it. And those, you know, it was just a shareware game. You either got it off of BBS or somebody copied the disc for you, or you just got it in a store and they didn't come with that cool little readme text or, or, you know, they had text file maybe to show you how to do the boot disc, but there wasn't the documentation. So you had to hope it came with the file or you hope that you had a guy that you could go to, to get the boot disc made in my case, because uh, with Epic pinball and jazz jackrabbit, Got a copy of that on my 486 Packard Bell, and it was the conventional memory issue as well as uh, extended memory, which was different from expanded memory, and then upper versus high memory blocks and high mem.sys and emm386 and all these kind of things. Didn't have MemMaker on that computer, so we had to figure out, I had a different boot disk for Epic Pinball and a different boot disk for Jazz Jackrabbit, and it was all thanks to a, a friend's grandfather who was literally like a government computer expert and he's like ah this is no problem kid here take this boot disc so uh, that's how we got around that but i had no idea how to do it myself that's for dang sure uh i just relied on those boot discs and i made copies of those boot discs to make sure that i could play those games um but yeah you know nowadays obviously the documentation's out there and you can just download somebody's pack usually fixes it uh but i still do occasionally run into problems um on even older hardware, like something like DOS 4GW, which was that main uh, commercial memory extender most people used, and like Doom and Duke 3D and everything else. Pretty much every DOS game after 1993 uh, used that, and I ran into problems with that back in the day. And still do on occasion. I think with Test Drive off road in particular, some of these really late DOS games that also kind of run under Windows 95. So there's this extra layer of complexity that DOS 4GW doesn't like to work with sometimes. And so I've had to swap out the version of DOS 4GW, put that mm. back in there to get it to work. Extreme paint brawl is another one that is like that. Uh, <laughs> if anybody would ever want to play that, but you know, there's yeah, extra headaches. <laughs> you know, to some weirdos it is, but uh, yeah, all this memory address it. Yeah. I'm, I'm very glad that that uh, was a very brief period of time and the games that do come with fixes for that. There's an occasionally you'll run across something that has, um, uh, like a boot disc maker, or very, very detailed instructions for getting the game to work. Um, but yeah, we're only talking about a period of a few years here, so and yeah, it's 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 not a big a big deal. And mostly, it's just an interesting side uh, trek into weird retro history with with stories like this
0: one. Sometimes it's not about the game; it's just about not being defeated, refusing mm. defeat. <laughs> Once you get to the title screen. Brilliant! You've won, uh, Dave. Yes. You're jumping up and down. I've
2: just remembered. I th- I think it was not uncommon for that just towards the end of that window before DOS4GW seemed to solve all the problems. Just before the end of that window, in the kind of Ultima Seven Part Two era, where it was all getting just closer and closer to that limit, I think the install programs or the configure programs would say warning: you've not got enough. And they would make the boot disk for you. And they mm-hmm. would they would pass your config.sys and your autoexec and make you a boot disk. They did the right things and solved it for you. So I've forgotten about that. Yeah, some of them do. And they will like write a backup autoexec
1: and could fix this file for yeah. you. And they'll just leave that there. And you could go back and forth between them. Of course, if you didn't know what any of that meant, uh, too bad, you know, it's just like, well, my startup files have changed now. That's just how it is. So I, <laughs> I can just imagine how many tech support calls went out for this for you game brought- publishers. I yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, no, the backup file's still
0: there. What's a backup file? It's like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. I have the reverse story to Clint, which was uh, it wasn't the old guy making me boot disks. It was me making boot disks for my dad. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I would have a selection of disks, usually for the flight sims that he wanted to play. Um, Ultima 7 needed 585K, just so you know, which is quite high. Uh, and of course... It had other problems as well, which was even if you got it to run, if you were playing on a slightly too fast CPU, then the game would just run too quickly. It was slightly odd um, in terms of the way that, that that was presented. Dave? I
2: have a little bone to pick with Clint. I had a look this morning, and you've not done any retrospectives on Ultima.
1: Shocking. I was <sighs>
2: hoping you wouldn't ask about that. Why do you hate Ultima? Why do you hate Ultima, Richard Garriott is crying right now. Oh, <laughs> poor Richard. <laughs> so...
1: See, this is why I can never join this podcast. I've never played an Ultima game. Wow. Oh, good. I there have you never played one. Uh, I mean, I you know, I get them going to test for certain benchmarks here and there. It's just like uh, you got to test Ultima 3 sometimes or 4 mm. or 7. Usually it's those. Uh, but, yeah, it's I've never actually taken the time to do that. And, yeah. Uh, it's did, uh
2: ultimate underworld that's the one uh, that's what i'd recommend you play. Wow. ultimate underworld was,
0: was there, you there a, an alternative that you're into whether it's wizardry or world of warcraft or any other rpg that you got heavily into Was it just not your absolutely
1: genre? not no. R- growing up in uh evangelical christian household that stuff was
0: nope okay nope, 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 nope. <laughs> can't
1: do it can't do it um you was know not Doom... a christian knockoff <laughs> Honestly, okay, so there there were, but I didn't have any of them at the mm. time. There were a couple um, made by some of those like Wisdom Tree folks that were sort right. of like in between that, but more like a Legend of Zelda-esque thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't remember what that was called, but I did play that at a Christian bookstore a couple times because they had computers set up with Christian alternative games that you could play. I uh, had another one. It was Captain Bible in the Dome of Darkness, which was <laughs> sort of a, a first person well, one. No, it was a third person dungeon crawl that kind of went into first person. First I thought you were shooter. <laughs> no, but it was a first person like sword thing. So you got like the sword of the spirit and the shield of whatever. And I don't know, God stuff. And like, yeah, you could like um, you would literally like stab heroin addicts because they were on drugs. <laughs> oh, and then, like, so you have to tell
0: them Bible verses about why drugs are bad and like
1: all these kinds. Wow. I had those type of games. <laughs> But
0: uh, <laughs> You weren't going to have a copy of Ultima a Pagan and a Pentagram on, no! your, on your bookcase. If it, no. if it
1: had a dungeon or a dragon or a dungeon or a dragon or any kind of, you know, like we had a copy of Hunter Hunted and that was off limits because it had a weird looking demon guy in the front cover. Like it was, eh. Wow. <laughs> so no, never
0: did. <laughs> well, that Here story we took an unexpected turn. I, um... You never know. You never know.
2: Just before we started recording, I was made aware that tickets for Kickstart 2, which is a UK Amiga event, have just gone on sale. I'd expect they'll be sold out by the time this goes out and broadcast, but links in the show notes just in case.
0: And also, uh, this week in retro, Daddy John Shawler, will be there. He's flying over to uh, help to host the event. Are you going to be at Kickstart, Neil? I'm going to have a little corner, got a little stand there like we did last year. And I won't be filming this year, which is we're taking one arcade machine um, and we'll take the apple crates and get the little set uh, set up there. But I'm going to enjoy it even more this year because I'm not going to be rushing around filming like I was last year. So that'd Mm. be nice. Yeah.
2: Um, A comment from Randall Heiter. He says, listening to Neil and Dave, I'm not sure this is just light handed banter. (laughs) Do they actually get on? Well, a comment from a man named Hater. Um, We we do. I I talk to Neil several times a day. He's my friend. I like Neil. We like each other, and um, I I think maybe that's why on these things we get stuck into each other in a way that makes makes people think we perhaps have some a bone to pick. No.
0: we we get sarcasm is is the worst form of uh, wit for translating uh, to a global audience so we're we're not surprised if sometimes people uh, think we're actually being nasty to each other we'll try not to do that won't we dave no There's a comment from a uh, long-time listener, Flibblesan. It says, love these podcasts, but please consider adding links to the video info box for the items mentioned in Dave's housekeeping. And yes, comment received, and um, we're going to make sure we put those links in in the show notes and on the screen. Won't we, Duncan? Yes. Thank you, Duncan. That wasn't his right accent. To his right accent. Yes, you slags. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Comment from Bernardo Pool. Bernardo Poole, sorry. If Bernando. the likes of
2: Neil. <laughs> <laughs> but that's grand. a good one
0: not it. <laughs> Bernardo Poole. If the likes of Neil and Dave running a train network with Pentium 166s and Windows 3.11 sounds preposterous. Why? Why does it sound preposterous? We could both do it. <laughs> Did you notice we both couldn't say the word preposterous? <laughs> preposterous. <laughs> Look at the 60-minute report on 23-year-olds operating the Titan nuclear missiles with 8-inch floppy disks and panels of blinking light bulbs. It's scary. That is scary is that a recent
1: yeah. report is that a- I there's been reports on that it seems like every 5 or 10 years there's a report over here about you can't you believe our nukes are still run with floppy disks and it's always these kids these kids just like you know just out of out of high school
0: in the military it's so weird oh, so I wonder weird. if one day we'll be thanking pirates for for <laughs> for pirating nuclear, nuclear <laughs> oh no the disk broken it's okay i pirated it Um, A comment
2: from I'm Deathing, he says I've been listening to your podcast for over a year and only today have I actually decided to watch it, or rather whilst at a PC remembered that the video version exists on a channel, and I love it it worked both ways. So it made me think, almost everyone I'm sure knows that there is a show as well as a podcast they're both the same but Perhaps are some people who are listening to the podcast who don't realise there is a show on YouTube. You could be watching us. Duncan puts lots of visuals up for you to see. You can see our faces and all the rest of it. It makes it a bit more engaging. In case you don't know, it's there for you.
0: And if you do come and watch us on YouTube, please subscribe. We're, we're yeah. edging ever closer to that 10,000, and we'd really like to see you all subscribe, so please do. Um, a, a message from Catriona on Discord. No, As mentioned, Katrina. Catriona. Katrina. Katrina, Katrina. As mentioned in chat, uh, it is the sensor and track condition system. So this goes back to last week's story uh, about trains running on 3.11. It says sensor and track condition system that is in the German high-speed trains ICE 1, 2, and 3 that are running Windows 3.11. It is an isolated system that only shows data for informational purposes to the train driver on his left of three screens. So there we go. Not not too worrying. Um, goes on to say the ICE one and two will be put out of service in 2030. ICE three will likely be phased out too, that being 40ish years old. Developing a new system or changing the hard uh, and software might be possible, but it all needs security certification and whatnot, so it's unlikely to even be done on time. And then there's a link. Here's some chap explaining how it all works. So Duncan, if you wouldn't mind putting that link in the show notes for anyone who's super interested in trains, hello Pillock um do you go and watch it? <laughs> like our resident train enthusiast on to
2: briefs um so this is stories that um actually lots of stories this week we're not going to cover them all that we're not going to discuss in detail but are very interesting anyway so the first one is from linux jedi he was over in brussels in belgium at the the um um delivering a presentation on the pi storm and he packed and took his Amiga 1200 to deliver the
0: presentation, presumably using a Pi Storm fitted inside it. Year of the Linux Jedi. Um, I did have him booked last year to do a talk at the cave, but I rather stupidly, it was a back-to-back talk. We had um, Stephen Leary with his terrible fire, and then we had Linux Jedi immediately after doing. So it's sort of back-to-back Amiga accelerator talks. <laughs> mm. So, so we've rescheduled. Well, I haven't rescheduled yet, but I'm planning on rescheduling. Well, that. he told and me it, yeah. it
2: was a cut down version of the talk he was planning to do at uh, at the cave. Fantastic. He did. I will link um, in the show notes.
0: Try to make sure that that work isn't wasted, and we can get him in at some point. Um, Prefim submitted a story um, in in which a spectrum plus uh, has been combined. So um, it's a nice looking one. What is this, Dave? You've looked at this. He's combined a yeah. Spectrum Plus. What's he combined it with? So he's taken a Spectrum Plus case. Right. He's put in a Plus 2 keyboard.
2: Uh, so you get the okay. nice keys from a Plus 2 uh, Spectrum in the Plus case, which is the case that looks most like a Spectrum of any of them, really, uh, along with a, a Sizziff 512 keyboard, which I don't know. I presume it's something like a Harlequin uh, to make a brilliant-looking and functioning specy. It looks like a real Spectrum back from, from back in the day. It wasn't a real Spectrum back in the day because it didn't have a proper keyboard, but it, it, it's, it's really interesting.
0: He took the nice keys from a Spectrum said nobody ever <laughs> well the plus two <laughs> the nicest of those available yes, yes the, yeah, plus, sure, the plus the sure. plus two keys are,
2: are are the ones that are most uh grown up of the spectrum keys yeah
0: dr local has uh, posted a list of the 400 mini so this is the atari 400 mini from retro games that that was announced recently the games list has been announced dave's got his atari t-shirt on today um no surprises on the game lists uh, and also, I think we mentioned this before, but Yump, which is a one modern game. Yump. Yump. Uh, you played Yump, Clint. Included. Uh,
1: yeah, that was one of the reasons I uh, got an 8-bit back in the day. I got a upgraded 600XL just so I could play that because I was so impressed with the demo. So, Say, say the word. Say the word. Yump. Yump. <laughs> Yump. It's got a great soundtrack, too. I love that soundtrack.
0: And on the subject of uh, international, uh, international intellectual property rights, there's been a story about Discworld being released into the public domain, the Discworld game, uh, and Chrissy saying or the story that he's linked expand no, 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 it's a
2: re-release, not the public domain. It's a re-release. Oh, it's of a it.
0: re-release of it. Okay, but legally done because he says whenever something closes in the UK, intellectual property rights revert to fifty percent to the original creator and fifty percent to the Crown which is now currently King Charles. So they are the two owners. <laughs> king Charles partially <laughs> owns the right to discworld the game. Um, this is from the House of Commons Library. It is vested in the King, but in general, its functions are exercised by ministers of the Crown, accountable to the UK Parliament or the three devolved legisl- legislatures. Um, in other words, it's a function like Revenue and Customs, uh, Department of Work and Pensions, DVLA, etc. cetera, um, So it's a bit of fun clickbait to say that Discworld lies with King Charles himself, but technically some of it does. 005
2: Agima, that name rings a bell. Um, He has shown us that there is a a Doom-like game on the C64 called Grey. Now, Chris makes the obvious joke that it's not called Brown, and I was thinking (laughs) that too. Um, It's better than what you might expect a C64 could do. Uh, but it's, it's still
0: one of
2: these games. I wish I was playing doom. That's what you will be saying. You're playing it.
0: Yeah. Um, lens cap submitted a story about the return or return into monkey Island documentary. Um, so, um, D- Dave, I think you commented that you loved the ahoy one from yeah. five years ago. Five years uh, ago. That was. Five years ago. There was also another one. Wasn't there? Um, there's been
1: a couple. Yeah. And oh. they've all been really good. Uh, yeah, what was that other one? It was about an hour and twenty minutes long. Is that uh, not the Ahoy one? one? No. no, there was a, there was the Ahoy one and then like a year or two ago there was oh. the other I don't remember what it was, but I have seen them both. I mean I've I'm seen another new one too.
2: Because so. he's a good he's
0: a good guy. Right. What's yeah, it's worth Ahoy mentioning.
2: It? The videos are massively popular. The Ahoy one is is hugely popular. It's a great video though. It's a great video.
1: I just finished watching this new one uh, over last weekend and it's also fantastic. Is it? Uh first I haven't time. Watched it yet. Yeah. yeah, that I've seen all the original developers like from Lucasfilm Games, you know, coming back, they, they got pretty much everybody was really involved um, to not only go over the, you know, it mostly talks about making the new one, but there's a lot of interesting information about the first uh, couple of games in particular about them making those.
0: So Yeah, the one I was thinking about was by On a Retro Tip. Yes. Um, the Making of uh, Monkey Island 30th Anniversary Documentary. That was three years ago. Yeah. Uh, had oh, 600,000 views uh, on a channel with 33,000 subscribers. That is a big, big deal. And deservedly so. He managed to pull together a lot of the original um, creators. I think we talked about it when it was released on the show. But um, there you go, on a retro. Please team. avail. Please yeah. um, and Indigo Prime submitted a story, um, New Commodore 64 and 1541, um in replacements so super interesting it's from uh mark at the retro channel the retro channel um he's a real australian chris if you're listening a real one he's produced two new drop-in chips for the c64 to help keep them alive and that's something we've spoken about a lot in the past for various platforms on the show and long may they keep coming uh with things like the arduino and um you know, all the, the variants of the pie to help keep our old systems running. And there's loads more. So do head to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro to submit your news stories and just find some cool stuff to read about and comment on with our little community there.
2: Today, I learned something new. It's not something I've wondered about too much, but it's always it's always me. It is something I thought about before and I've never thought enough to look into but it now makes sense to me. And if we think back to vintage machines, and we think about the, the colored LEDs that light up, if we go back to the the, the Altair 8000, 8, for example, that's the one with no screen, um, just loads of switches and red LEDs, um, not the 8-bit game, red LED. Uh, and almost all of the machines we had back in the day had a green, yellow, or red LED that showed they were on or disk activity. But if I think back over the past maybe
0: 15 or 20 years, all of a sudden it's all been blue. Blue, yeah. Retina piercing blue at 1am in the morning. Yeah. Really, and for, really blue, yeah.
2: For some reason, and I'm going to tell you why, but for some reason, about 20 years ago, they said it has to be blue from now on. Even the, the webcam I'm using has a blue LED in it. Everything has to be blue. There was, was a line in the sand drawn and said, no, red's not good, yellow's not good, green's not good. It has to be blue. So... Back in 1962, General Electric invented the red LED and a green one was created a couple of years later by Monsanto. So those two together allowed yellow as well, but not blue. So you had red and green, but not the blue. And while no blue means no eye-burning, annoying LEDs and modern Chinese tech, it also means no combination of red, green, and blue to get white. Now, Happy Coring ZX has submitted a really fascinating video on blue LEDs from Ver- Veritasium. It goes on to explain that there was a huge push to get blue LEDs after they managed to get the green ones. But for decades after the red and yellow, they didn't manage it. Um, and they were pretty much, at the start, it seems as if they were a big rush to get them, as if we're going to get them, and then people just kind of gave up. The reason for the push is that if there was a blue LED, then it could be combined with red and green and we'd get lights that were white. So LED lights were kind of already invented in the 60s, sort of, and they were just missing one part to actually make them. So they already knew what they wanted to do, they just didn't have the technology to do it. So the search for blue LEDs was like trying to formulate new alloys of steel to get the right properties. That was the kind of thing they were trying to do with various different dopings of crystal to make the right material to get it. And the video tells a story of Shuji Nakamura and how he struggled and struggled through doubt and ridicule and adversity to eventually create it. It's a, it really is a fascinating tale. It's well worth watching the video. Finally solving in 1992, and then a further advance, let them put a cap over it to turn the blue into white. And in 1994, they started selling these blue LEDs. But I've, if I'm going to bring it back, and as much as I now think Nakamura is a hero, and I mean that, it's, it's a fantastic story. I hate blue LEDs. I really do. They're everywhere. They annoy me. And the opposite, red green and yellow are lovely and soothing led lights are good though i love them i'm using them now they're a fantastic invention but when i restored my ibm ps2 model 30 one of the things i insisted on was getting a yellow hard disk activity light to make it look proper and it makes a huge difference to me neil what do you think
0: well um blue and vintage blue led actually first of all i'm very surprised it was 94 i would have placed it nearer to 2000 i didn't realize they came around that early maybe the cost came down i don't know maybe Maybe. cost cost and capacity and
1: manufacturing and stuff didn't take off until like 2001 ish so yeah
0: so um there was that blue and vintage just doesn't go together for obvious reasons although you know um maybe an amstrad cpc 464 would you would you would you allow a blue no. power light? No, I'm no. <laughs> no, not going to allow that. I'm offended no. you even suggested it. <laughs> what about like strobing through the colors cuz you know the the 464's got the little colorful logo. Do you know
2: even the blue LED lights that we normally get, they're, they're bluish white, they're really really yeah, They're violent kind of color. Yeah, to them. It's are. not it's not the it's not it's not a peaceful color like the reds and yellows that subdued colors we get. So maybe if if we got a nice
0: proper blue nice one then it'd be all right Mm, a soothing blue anyway i'm not going to talk too much on this because i happen to know that we have someone here who covered this very story some time ago i didn't know it's not you dave no
2: (laughs) I I, i honestly didn't know (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i i had so many people uh, in the comments of that video and in other places be like you just got ripped off by veritasium they took it i'm like no it's this. it's just a story that's really good that's why i made the video but that was like back in 2017 seven years ago whatever it was so uh yeah i mean it was just it's a good story i hadn't seen it told back then so i made an lgr tech tales about the creation of the blue leds but um, I went a little bit farther back than he did, just talking about some of the really, really early stuff, because LED experiments go back like 100 plus years, which is nuts. Um, so, yeah, the whole idea of LEDs, uh, the LED dyes and creating that has been Uh, an idea floating around in science for so long. I just found that fascinating. And honestly, it was like you, Dave. I just hate blue LEDs so much. (laughs) I was like, why do we have these on everything? You know, I think I was just looking around in my living room writing something and there was a Blu-ray player just, you know, burning my retina out while I was trying to type and it annoyed me. So I'm like, why do we have these stupid things? Why does everybody use them? And uh, it really was just a novelty, you know, to show like, yeah, you have this futuristic product. Uh, for a while um but yeah the, the actual veritasium video was really really good uh easily the best job i've seen at explaining all of the weird technical stuff visually with the seating metaphor of all the little things going across and showing band gaps and uh, material layering which is extremely hard to describe and even harder i think to show visually which is why i basically didn't do any of that in my video so i'm glad that he did um you now his team really he's got a whole team of folks As I had some folks getting in touch, being like, why didn't you cover all that stuff? I'm like, well, I don't have like eight people working for me either. Um, So anyway, it was a great video. Glad to see it's out there because Nakamura deserves, you know, respect and just to be known about because he was one of those one of those guys, you know, just kept on going throughout everything and didn't get much for it. Another part of that that I actually didn't realize is how little he got paid relatively speaking for his work, I think he got like $140 for the patent and like that made them, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars um, or more, more, I don't know. So it's a, kind of a weird pay disparity there, but I guess it's just part of the agreement when you're an engineer working for one of those companies.
2: Uh, so yeah, that's fascinating on its own. I did try and think about a kind of devil's advocate position in that. The company for seemingly years let him try and spend loads of money on the kit for him to do this oh sure if had, yeah, yeah if he hadn't done that that money would have gone nowhere so maybe the company's advert is hang on we risked hundreds of thousands in the hope that you might you might get lucky and do this and you did so we can't we can't then be expected not to reap the benefits of that but i'm not saying it was fair what happened to him because it clearly wasn't but yeah it
1: kind of feels up. it feels unfair as a person it feels very fair as a business you know like oh we, this is exactly what was in the contract and you know you're being mm. paid to do the work and you're using our resources to do the work even though your name is on all the patents it's really kind of ours as the company so i i get it both you know it's just if you once you hear the guy speak and like go uh go through all
2: that he went through uh you just empathize, right? So The company should have said, okay, here's a great big royalty check. Here you go. It's not would have contract, been nice. but there you go. And it's it's not as if it, it would have hurt them to say, look, there's $10 million. Yeah. But, uh,
1: yeah, I mean, just in terms of you know, going back to like wood blue work in vintage, about the only thing that I could imagine working with blue LEDs on a vintage PC would be an old IBM. I think that would be very suitable just because big blue and mm. has that sort of mainframe look to it, so blue LEDs and like a, a nice industrial IBM case or something, I think would look great. Uh, but I mean, I still wouldn't want to look at it for very long <laughs> if, if it were angled to just the right way. It's just that eye-searing kind of quality that they have. It's it's hitting that right uh, wavelength, I guess, mm. literally a wavelength where it just it hurts. Uh, it's ruined Christmas lights. I, I can't stand LED Christmas lights because of the most of them the way that they are. they're if they're angled to just the right way, and you're sitting in your living room and you got like that one blue LED just pointing at your face. Uh, that sucks. You didn't get that with incandescence. So one step away from a laser, yeah. Yeah, it feels like a laser. So, you know, there's there's that whole situation where it does feel like they're a blight and they've been overused,
2: I think, or
1: overcorrected.
2: It's almost as if the people designing this technology knew what all it went through and that this is some kind of flex they're doing. Saying, Look, we've got blue LEDs and there's Not a green one, not a yellow one. It's a blue LED. Our oh,
1: great. and headlights. Headlights of cars have oh. suffered massively and that's an ongoing thing. Blinding. Uh, Mm. Uh, I actually did an interview with somebody for a car magazine a year or so ago and they were they saw my blue LED video and they're like what do you think about headlights I'm like well here we go <laughs> and I just went on a rant and yeah it's a car it, magazine it's, interview it's the Yeah it was yeah. some random I don't even remember what the publication was but yeah they were doing an article on on the uh, the blight of blinding LEDs and why it's become such a problem yeah. and why there's especially here in the US we're not regulated in the same way it's very weird because of this like 70s either over or under regulation. I don't know. There's weird highway stuff uh, and it's all very, very slow to catch up to new technology and change like you know, they still don't allow like camera mirrors. Like for instance, you still have to have physical mirrors, and they won't allow the mm-hmm. cameras. They won't allow like the uh, the self-adjusting
2: LED headlights that you have in Europe. So mm-hmm. where it'll dim in oh, certain yeah. zones. Mine, if, I, if I start to turn my wheel, my my headlights will go a certain yeah, way. I around, like, yeah. as you're going around a corner. The lights yeah.
0: are around yeah. the yeah. corner.
2: Yeah,
1: there are certain exceptions to that, but we've been very slow. Like we just started getting those, I think, and very high-end models. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, blue it's, LEDs it's, it's are. It's the combination
0: annoying. of the LEDs and also just the different heights of cars. There's a lot of lot yeah, of higher cars yeah. now, and when uh, I'm just in my my regular sized car, I just it's in the eye line, which is horrible. Mm-hmm.
2: Mine's quite low down, so I'm always getting blinded by them. Yeah. There
0: we go. Is that so, is that where this story was going? Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was Clint's thinking about. Watched the video. Got a wonderful of derailing us. Yes.
2: <laughs> His amazing journey did bring us modern flat panel TVs, lights, and all that. But I still prefer a green or yellow one. He got a Nobel Prize for it, and he's now started a company to try and do nuclear fusion. It's just a blue so,
0: LED. That's it. That's his nuclear fusion. It's just a blue LED pointed <laughs> into a camera. <laughs> Hamid watched
2: a video. If anyone's going to do nuclear fusion, it's going to be him. We'll get fusion reactors inside our PCs.
0: I wish him all the luck. <laughs> Time now for our community question of the week. So last week's question was a short and simple one What examples of old tech have you seen in use? working or failing in modern life? Uh, Dave, I have taken it out of contest mode in anticipation, so our answers are ordered. Um, and I'll read the first one from a user who I haven't seen their name on the forum before. Forum on Reddit before. Is Reddit a forum? Would you call it a forum?
1: Yeah, it's a social Reddit. forum. It's a yeah. user-voted social forum. Yeah. A forum
0: mixed with a ben Fire. Yeah, I will <laughs> go with that. A fire-room. Um, this user is VegetableMessage22, and they say, I saw a Commodore CDTV playing music in a shop eight years ago. I think that was peak such things I have seen. Also seen a digital, that's the brand digital, PC running around a Pentium 133 or such as a proxy server for a mid-sized company not long ago. That was forgotten about and did not <laughs> did not do a good job, so we removed it. I'm not surprised. Um, yeah, Dave, do you want to take the next one?
2: So, Richard Shears says, The oldest and most failing is me. Uh-huh. I've come to the conclusion that I was not made for this modern life. Thankfully, I have the delights of tour to make it all worth it. And now I'll go and have breakfast. I'll use my 35 year old toaster that's still going strong, working well. Thankfully, this one doesn't talk, unlike myself, so I'll shut up now. <laughs> Lord Borag actually replies, Talky toaster, your chirpy breakfast companion. Does anybody want any toast?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um clint have you got the page open did you want to read out the next one or
1: yeah you... by uh happy coding z zx i'm gonna say z well uh... done well done <laughs> ZX. i mean i just assume you got those two letters beside each other like that okay so they say uh, i live in central asia and last year i dislocated my collarbone in a bike accident we went to the casualty department for an x-ray and noticed that the software used on the machine was very much from the 1990s. My guess would be Windows NT, judging by the fonts and menus. It all seemed to work perfectly, so if it ain't broke, don't fix it, unlike my shoulder.
0: <laughs> uh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's plenty of that lingering in hospitals. Um, yeah, maybe Happy Coding needed something that was arm-powered.
1: Hey. <laughs> oh, <laughs> goodness.
0: Geez, Neil. Got a bone to pick expect- with that one, man.
1: Yay. Oh. Yeah. I'm still expecting you to, get,
2: to get me back for last week's valiant turtle command.
0: Oh no, revenge <laughs> has to be served cold, Dave. The time yeah, will come. The time will definitely will. Come. will. <laughs> so, uh, our question of the week. If you'd like to participate this week, head over to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro. Question of the week is pinned at the top. And this week's question, well, it follows on. I used to um, I used to make my dad's boot disks, as I mentioned earlier, to free up enough memory for him to launch his game, sometimes with a little menu. I'd like to know, to what lengths have you gone to help simplify technology for your friends, family, or loved ones? What hoops have you jumped through? What ridiculous things have you come up with to try and make? Uh, what to you is probably a simple thing, uh, even more simple for them to cope with? Hopefully we'll get some good juicy stories Thank you once again to Clint for joining us. Very much appreciate you giving mm. us your time.
1: Yeah, my, my pleasure. Lather.
0: Yeah, thank sure, you. Sure, definitely not. Um, Dave. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Dave. Yeah. You're welcome, Neil. <laughs> my, my friend. <laughs> thank you, Dave, my friend. Thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen. Of course, if you really enjoyed the show, head to patreon.com forward slash thisweekinretro, and we'll see you same time, same place next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, waving bye Clint's not waving come on Clint he's waving oh two double hands. hand wave two hands This Week in Retro was
2: presented by Neil from RMC The Cave and Dave it was produced by me Duncan Styles. the podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster including Apple Podcasts and Spotify and the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel Join our community subreddit at rstroke this week in retro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to
0: help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.
1: Kind of feel like Chris is a ghost, you know. <laughs> you feel the haunted. ghost pirate Chris. Yeah. It's like Chris, if you're listening, can you hear us? We're thinking about you. <laughs> Tap three times
2: on the table if you can hear us. <laughs> <laughs>